Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. This episode is brought to you by Pedigree. If you've been looking for love at first sight, it is closer than you think. It can be found at your local shelter. So this June 7th to 9th, join the Pedigree Adoption Drive and the Pedigree brand will reimburse your dog adoption fees nationwide. Pedigree knows that bringing a dog into your home not only opens their heart, it can open yours too. Visit pedigree.com slash adoption dash drive to learn more about the adoption drive and to see full terms and conditions. Hey, this is Sani. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff I Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. And welcome, y'all. Uh, this is our first full episode, isn't it, of the year? It is. It is. Oh. And I am not off to a great start uh, because <laughs> what I originally had planned versus what we have versus what it have, has extended to, of course, uh, this is my job, y'all. Anyway, <laughs> uh, but yes, we are happy to come back and do finally a full episode uh, after being on vacay slash also being sick. Really weird start to the mm. year. But yeah. You know, recently we, uh, I think we actually mentioned how we had uh, some great conversations with people in our lives, specifically about gender roles and how traditions and expectations have really structured our internal judgment of ourselves and what we think traditions should look like. Um, Specifically, I was talking with my partner's mother, who has some amazing stories of how she was able to overcome sexist bias in her industry and in her life overall. She is a Georgia Tech alum, so one of your people's Annie's. Mm -hmm. Uh, She was one of the first in the pharmacy program and graduated. Wow. Like She was super young, too. Like, really huge uh, accolades to her. She did some amazing things. I remember when we were talking, um, my face just kind of was like, what? What? Because she was just talking about everything she was involved in. And I was like, she she was really paving some ways for a lot of women in a very technical school. And she was even told by her father she would never get in because she was like, it's a school for dudes. Why, what are you doing? But she did. She graduated mm-hmm. and she became a pharmacist. Um which is amazing in itself. But also, one of the things that we also talked about while we were there was about Southern magazines, because 
holiday time. Um, we all know that there uh, there's a lot when it comes to preparing for the holidays. We've talked about this. We've complained about this. And I have told you I would never do it. I'm over it. Don't I haven't even started it. I'm not going to do it. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. But she talked about how she grew up reading Southern magazines, uh, specifically one we will talk about later, Southern Living. And how she was really taught this is the way you were supposed to be as a woman. That everything you see in this magazine, if you want to be a perfect, successful woman in the South, this is what you follow. Uh, And my mother was very close to that. As in fact, my house had tons of Southern Living magazines. Did you have any of those? I don't remember if we had Southern Living. My mom definitely has... Still has a stack of magazines. I don't know how old they are, <laughs> but she, they were very much in the same vein of like decoration ideas, recipes, uh, advice, things like that. So I don't know right. if I had that specifically, but generally, yes. Generally, something like that. And, mm-hmm. and, there's, and there are so many more. Um, this magazine is so, so successful that it's one of the highest grossing magazines for Time, Inc. So Time uh, Magazine's Time, Inc. bought it uh, not too long ago, I don't think. And the amount that they make is Unbelievable, especially being that it's only literally localized to the South. So I think it was based out of um, Alabama. It may be still, not sure. Uh, But they circulate over, I believe, 2.8 million copies. Um, And that was in like, that's a low number, I think, at one point in time. They were acquired by Time Magazine for $498 million in 1985. So, like, they they made it. As a magazine, they made it. They're huge. Mm -hmm. Um, And some of the other publications that Time owns is Sports Illustrated, and it literally ranks up there with them for Mm -hmm. how much they make. Um, Yeah, and if you've ever visited a waiting room in the South, you've probably seen it yourself. If you need an example, I'm sure... You can find it at the grocery store. I don't know. Is it available nationally yeah. or is it? Okay, I wonder. Well, I don't know about nationally, but I've seen it in the yes. grocery store. If you come sure. into the South, you, you, you have seen it. <laughs> and there are so many replicas of it. Uh, Guns and Gardens, as in fact, the person, I believe the old editive, editor of Guns and Gardens is now the new editor of Southern Living. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been featured by so many uh they, they are a, a standard. And when I tell you when it comes to holidays, they go all out and people want this magazine and try to replicate this magazine. I have seen bloggers that have tried to replicate the perfect Southern Christmas, as they call it, and it's based off of Southern living ideals. And so when she, she actually brought up that magazine was t- talking about how it really affected her and her feeling like she has to keep up with the standard and really trying her best. And she was, unlike my mother, um, a working mom. So she was a pharmacist at the same time that she was raising her children, doing all these things and trying to be the perfect Southern woman and making sure she kept the perfect Southern home and make sure that Christmas was a Christmas wonderland. And again, I know we've talked about our own parents. You do some things with your parents, your mother, but like my mother goes all the way out. And one day I'm going to have to take pictures because the way she has like themed areas, not one theme, but themed areas with two Christmas trees, three Christmas trees. Um, So she goes all out. And my partner's mom was talking about the fact that she was like, 
yeah, this year I, I've started to learn this was not healthy and I'm, I'm not doing it anymore. And I'm scaling back. I'm scaling back. Oh, mm-hmm. and by the way, her scaled back, uh, quote unquote, of Christmas decorations is still 10 hundred times more than I have ever tried. <laughs> like I walked mm. in, I was like, what? <laughs> like it looks yeah. so it looks great. It's very pristine and, and pretty. And like I was like, oh, look at all this Christmas stuff. And she's like, this is scaled back. And I was like, wow. <laughs> okay. I wonder what it used to look. I wonder if it used to be like on par with my mother with things right. in every room. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, just a disclaimer here, because I've been thinking about this previously. Loving Christmas and the holidays and going all out, we're not trying to tell anyone that that's a bad thing or criticizing that at all in that way. Um, If you love it, keep doing it. I love seeing it. I I literally met, uh, went to one of our neighbor's house, and she has so many holiday (laughs) decks. I mean, she had, I think we counted 12 trees. Like, whoa, not all of them were full size, but they were decorated and they were Mm -hmm. everywhere. And Mm -hmm. she was so excited to show it off. And it was beautiful. And she was so excited about talking about all of them and just like how she loves Christmas. And I'm like, that's amazing. I wish Mm -hmm. I was that person. I want I want to be that person. How do I become that person? Um, So doing that makes you happy. Please know that we are happy for you. We're just pointing out that most of the time, these types of activities are typically women's responsibilities and often add more labor and work for women. And um, much of the past media would only deepen the idea that being a good housewife would be that they would make their home, again, like a winter wonderland, that they were obligated to do so and to not do it would be a failure as a wife and a mother. So, again... Some of these things are amazing, and we love it, and I love to see it. And if you love it, that's amazing. So please know, we are not saying not to do it. We're just saying there's also that flip side. And a lot of the times, these types of magazines perpetuate this. Mm -hmm. But go moving on. (laughs) We do, with all of that, in this conversation and in the spirit of coming back to work, we did what we do best. We went down a rabbit hole of the history of women's magazines and how they have influenced us over the years. Um, and as an ex-millennial, and I, when I say ex, I mean like Generation X because I'm still very confused by this, uh, <laughs> that went to school before the use of the internet uh, and we used magazines and encyclopedias and, um, as our references for actual projects. Like, we literally knew how to do the bibliography yeah. with that. Um, yeah. I read through so many teen and 17 magazines growing up and even collected a few. Um, not as many as I think you might have, Annie. Did you have a lot of <laughs> magazines growing up? Uh, Yeah. I mean, I don't know that... I have as many as you think. I was oh. Adventure Time. Okay. Was that the magazine? <laughs> Disney Adventures. Yeah. Adventure, and, it, oh, I knew Adventure Land, right? I think it was. Something that well, was a zoo magazine. It was too. like towards kids. And then I did get Entertainment Weekly, but I usually uh-huh. just did it for like the actors I liked. Oh, okay. I, I, I was thinking about this the other day. I had a really creepy shrine to Ryan Gosling, <laughs> and I would take like. Cuttings from magazines and put yes. them in this Reese's box. <laughs> Interesting. I, I'm going to describe it to you in great depth later because it's really funny, but I will <laughs> prevent myself from embarrassing myself. So here, 
Oh, well, I have a feeling that might be on our next next episode. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, we'll I will talk about share. That later. I will share. Uh, but yeah, like I like you had a few. I didn't get any subscriptions as a kid. Of course, mm-hmm. my mom had, like I said, had some magazines. I did get some like National Geographic magazines. I'm not really sure why. I don't know who handed them down. And apparently mm-hmm. some of them, like the older ones, are worth money. I don't know. Maybe they're maybe that's an eBay thing. I don't know. Um, <laughs> and of course, like you, I didn't necessarily cut out to put them in a box, but I did do collages. So <laughs> Okay. And you need you have to have like, you know, I didn't do the ransom letter thing. That's that's too much. You know how you cut up random yes. letters. Um uh-huh. but you know, I think I did like my dream something and it was all like magazine yes. cutouts essentially uh, mm-hmm. so yeah so we went to this so just uh, as a disclaimer some of the things we're, we're talking mainly about the history of it of magazines and specifically women's magazines again at the end of it we are going to kind of talk about Southern Living because I did want to bring it back to it because it's mainly subscribed by women um, and it was geared towards women so we're going to talk about that we are going to do another episode but I think we're going to push it back because it's going to be somewhat related to the the Reese's Box and Ryan Gosling shrine <laughs> of uh, w- uh, magazines today, including teen magazines. So just as the big arc of like, it's not a series. I'm not doing this again, Annie. I swear to God, I'm not. <laughs> yeah. I'm not. This is your New Year's goal. No more 12-part series. Okay. Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring with access to over 6 million active hourly workers. Snag a job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand. Tempt to hire part time or full time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah. Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, 
a military-trained seduction spy, reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I do want to revisit some of the magazines and subscriptions today. But again, Mm -hmm. this is mainly about the history of it. And uh, I don't think there's any content warning necessary, but you know... It's the history of magazines, and when it comes to history for uh, things that are geared or consumer-driven towards women, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> so Maybe it's more... just looking... <laughs> condescending language, perhaps. <laughs> yes, yes. Lots of condescending language, uh, a lot of consumerism, a lot of... Uh, we do talk about race even. So, you know, there's a whole thing, I guess, but not yeah, yeah. too triggering like... Our yeah. past episode. So here we go. Yes. All right. Um, so when it comes to the overall history of magazines, it is, of course, a little bit murky. Uh, most of the historical timeline for magazines starts at the invention of the printing press. But pamphlets and leaflets were used uh, before that in countries like China and around the world. Um, but going by the invention timeline, shall we say, the first magazine to ever be published was the German magazine. Uh, in English translated, I'm not going to attempt it, um, Edifying Monthly Discussions, which was published around 1663. I was telling Samantha I have had four years of German. (laughs) I don't have the courage today to attempt it. Um, (laughs) And this was quickly followed by French published magazines titled Journal des Scavans, or later known as Journal des Savants in 1665, And in that same year, England would publish The Philosophical Transactions, and many more followed after that. Obviously. According to a Britannica article, these journals, quote, summarize important new books, but there were as yet no literary reviews. Book advertisements by about 1650, a regular feature of the news sheets, sometimes had brief comments added, and regular catalogs began to appear, such as the English quarterly Mercurius Librarius. I feel like I'm doing a spell, (laughs) or a catalog of books, which was uh, published 1668 and 1670. But in the 17th century, the only periodicals devoted to the books were short-lived. The Weekly Memorials for the Ingenious, which was published 1682 to 83, which offered some critical notes on books, and the Universal Historical uh, Bibliothèque, which was from January to March in 1686. The latter invited scholarly contributions and could thus be regarded as the true forerunner of the literary reviews. So this was kind of what was beginning. Right. Um, And according to the same Britannica article, they say the first, quote, periodical of amusement, or lighter reads, um, if you will, was possibly started in 1672. They write, quote, the Mercure Galant, renamed Mercure de France in 1714. It was founded by the writer Jean Donaud de Vizet and contained court news, anecdotes, and short pieces of verse, a recipe that was to prove endlessly popular and become widely imitated. And of course, this would all lead up to the beginning of magazines specifically targeted to women. As the article writes, quote, in 1693, after devoting some experimental numbers of the Athenian Mercury to, quote, the fair sex, 
Dunton brought out the first magazine specifically for women, The Ladies Mercury. So let's talk about how successful these experiments were. Right. So much like today, all of the material and content that was seen at the beginning of the women's magazine era reflected what was happening during the time. As the Britannica article writes, quote, women's magazines frequently reflect the changing view of women's role in society. In the 18th century, when women were expected to participate in social and political life, those magazines aimed primarily at women were relatively robust and stimulating in content. In the 19th, when domesticity became the ideal, they were inclined to be insipid and humorless. After about 1880, magazines began to widen their horizons again. And in 1770, one of the noted first women's magazine, and I'm going to put a disclaimer here, this is listed as the first one to be published, but we know that the dabbling began much earlier, so not the actual first women's published, but uh, the one that is most often listed and credited as the first. It was the British magazine, The Ladies Magazine. Very on the nose. Yes. Um, Here's a quote from the National Portrait Gallery about the magazine. The Ladies Magazine, or Entertaining Companion for the Fair Sex, London, was an early monthly periodical for women which dominated the market for most of its run. It aimed to amuse and improve, providing fiction, poetry, music, and social gossip, as well as giving more space to fashion than its predecessors. Its first issue in August 1770 included as its frontispiece a plate titled A Lady in Full Dress in August 1770, and it became the first magazine in any country to regularly issue plates showing contemporary fashions. The early engravings were uncolored until about 1790 when hand-colored ones were included. And during the time following, there were several other publications that came around. Um, And here's another quote from that Britannica article. Quote, later women's magazines included The Ladies' Pocket Magazine, 1824 to 1840, the Ladies' Cabinet, 1832 to 1852, the New Monthly Bell Assemblée, 1847 to 1870, and the Ladies' Treasury, 1857 to 1895, all contained verse fiction and articles of high moral tone, but low intellectual content. <laughs> and the quote continues pointing out that there were magazines that had a bit more depth, but they didn't really survive. Uh, the article reads... There were attempts to swim against the tide, such as The Female's Friend, 1846, which was one of the first periodicals to espouse women's rights, but they seldom lasted long, right? That lasted less than a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what did come around soon after was the birth of the homemaker-based and practical advice magazine for women. And one of the earlier providers for this type of magazine was the English Woman's Domestic Magazine, started by Samuel Beaton with the help from his wife, Isabella Mary Beaton. You can listen to a Saver episode uh, that I did on my other podcast all about that. And her contributions would later be published in her widely acclaimed Book of Household Management, which was a collection of Isabella's work. And here's a quote about that from that Britannical article. It was also the first women's periodical to concentrate on home management and offer practical advice to women rather than provide entertainment for the idol. 
before the idol. How dare you? Mm-hmm. I guess it does stretch differently. <laughs> um, so a little more detail from the National Portrait Gallery says the English Woman's Domestic Magazine, London, published by Samuel Orchard Beaton, began as the first cheap monthly magazine for young middle class women with a strong emphasis on practical instructions and useful knowledge such as dressmaking, but only occasional black and white engravings of French fashions. Domestic management material was written by his wife, Isabella Beaton, and collected as her book of household management in 1861. In 1860, the price increased and more space was given to fashion and fiction with colored fashion plates and large fold-out embroidery patterns and less to instructional material, as it was directed to a wealthier and more fashionable readership. Between 1862 and 1864, both shilling and sixpenny editions were issued, the first with a fashion and fiction supplement, but from January 1865, the supplement was absorbed into the magazine. The Parisian fashion plates and imported were by Jules David, uh, first issued in L'Aventure de la Mode. Yeah, no, I did that wrong, but we're going to go on. Uh, one was included every month, and then when the magazine merged with the milliner, dressmaker, and warehouseman's gazette in 1877, it continued to issue David's plates until it ceased publication in 1881. There were and are many of these types of magazines in the U.S., They are still with us today. Um, Some of the first magazines include Harper's Bazaar, which was started in 1867, and The Goodies Ladies Book, which started in 1830. And The Goodies Ladies Book actually had 150 women employed to hand tint fashion plates. Uh, Previous episodes, we've mentioned them before. And in this group of magazines, also, we can can include The Ladies Home Journal. And here's some information about that from Wikipedia. Uh, It was first published on February 16th, 1883, and eventually became one of the leading women's magazines of the 20th century in the United States. In 1891, it was published in Philadelphia by the Curtis Publishing Company. In 1903, it was the first American magazine to reach 1 million subscribers. Um, And the Britannica article writes, The field of women's magazines was finally transformed, however, by Cyrus Curtis with his Ladies' Home Journal, founded 1883, edited by his wife, Louisa Knapp Curtis. This soon reached a circulation of 400,000 and under the editorship of Edward W. Bach from 1889, broke with sentimentality and piety to become a stimulating journal of real service to women. So the history of this magazine is pretty fascinating. We have stories of editors, men, uh, writing op-eds to oppose the women's suffrage movement, saying things like, quote, a vision of the women at home living the simple life and um, and having many more saying that women are enemies to themselves. So like, oh, that's nice. Cool. <laughs> um, and then uh, women employees, I believe this was in the 1970s, were having sit-ins uh, to demand a woman editor. Uh, and by the way, it didn't work, uh, but they did get their own section, uh, which, according to Wikipedia, says, quote, they wanted the magazine to recognize a wider variety of choices for women's lives, as well as give greater attention to women's issues such as sexual discrimination and abortion. Other activists continued to protest and seem to have achieved some success. Uh, they may not have liberated the ladies' home journal, but they did help change perception of how the media could portray women's lives, according to one source. And it is something to note that the first editor of this magazine was a woman, uh, the wife, Louisa Knapp Curtis. But she was there for less than a year, and it was then taken over by the dude who really did not like the women's suffrage movement. Mm -hmm. With the growth of women's magazines, there was what 
was called The Seven Sisters, which was a group of women's magazines that targeted women with husbands and children and were to assist homemakers at the time. Within this list uh, that we can include the original Ladies Home Journal magazine, but also um, Family Circle, McCall's, Red Book, and three that are still circulating today, Better Homes and Gardens, Women's Day, and Good Housekeeping. Which, yeah, speaking of good housekeeping, the magazine actually started in 1885, just more than a century ago. Uh, um, here's a little bit about the magazine from an article from mylifetime.com. On May 2nd, 1885, the first issue of Good Housekeeping magazine was published. Founded by Clark W. Bryan in Holyoke, Massachusetts, the stated mission of the magazine was to produce and perpetuate perfection or as near onto perfection as may be attained in the household. Right. Um, and the article continues, since early on, good housekeeping took its mission of producing and perpetuating perfection in the household seriously. In the late 19th century, the magazine published groundbreaking articles about food safety and advocating for consumer protection. As early as 1887, good housekeeping reported on topics ranging from watered down milk to candy contamination with asbestos. And yes, they actually still have the Good Housekeeping Institute today. So this thing exists. Here's a bit of information from Good Housekeeping themselves. Quote, founded in 1900, the Good Housekeeping Institute was at first called the Good Housekeeping Experiment Station. The invention of electricity had introduced many new labor-saving home appliances, but few consumers had any real knowledge of their operation and maintenance. With the goal of studying, quote, the problems facing the homemaker and to develop up-to-date first-hand information on solving them. The staff at the GH Experiment Station tested products and housekeeping methods and published articles about their discoveries and observations. They also reprinted advice from readers who wrote them. One reader offered a cure for calluses. She used olive oil and cotton. Another reader advised about how to launder lace drapes, and another gave tips about the best way to clean a meat chopper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, would, I would also offer this reminder. This is before the time of the internet, and if you listen to our episode of, like, Betty Crocker, mm -hmm. this was really important. Like, if you were lonely in the kitchen, you didn't know right. what to do, you would read something like this and be like, oh, okay. Yeah. And you felt less alone, and you had these instructions. Like, you couldn't just go online and be like, YouTube has saved many of us from some disasters. Yes. Exactly. And exactly. confusion. Yes. Um, okay. But beyond just observing, at one point in the early 1900s, Good Housekeeping made some huge controversies through their institute. As the institute was getting bigger and their reputation was rising with the promise of testing and giving seals of approvals for different foods and products, that bled into advertisements that the FTC would claim were exaggerated and false. Um and that the magazine was making, quote, misleading and deceptive guarantees. And this would lead to a lawsuit that would take two years to get through and even had competitors from the Seven Sister Group testifying against the magazine. Um, the magazine did drop, tested and approved from their seal, but it didn't really stop their growing popularity. And also, this continues to be a point of contention. And again, you can see the same episode we did <laughs> about that. we should that. publish it on ours. <laughs> we should. I think we should. We said, what company did that? They did the the diabetes, good for your heart health, and it <gasps> changed the way we advertise. Cheerios? I think it is, but it's got to be their parent company. Yeah. But yes, yes. Whatever it was that was like good General for your Mills, heart. right? Yeah. Something, yeah. But anyway. Interesting. Keep going. <laughs> yes. Um, here is another quote from Good Housekeeping. 
Concerned about adulteration and misbranding, home economists on staff also tested foods for purity and published, starting in 1905, a roll of honor for pure food products each month. All this testing at what was now called the Good Housekeeping Institute resulted in December 1909 with the beginning of the tested and approved list of all household products that were found to meet the Institute's standards of excellence. Good Housekeeping Seal became so well known that it has become part of the lexicon with celebrities, governments, manufacturers, basically everyone using it. And yeah, as you can see, they did not include the tidbit about the lawsuit here. Right. Mm. Found that interesting. I was like, huh, <laughs> they still said the seal. Yeah. And you know what? Um, <laughs> they, they do some big claims here. And here's what's happening with the Institute today, according to their site, quote, Today, the Good Housekeeping Institute is located in the Hearst Tower in New York City and staffed by chemists, biologists, nutritionists, engineers, home economists, and culinary experts who evaluate thousands of consumer products each year from microwave and mascaras to vacuums and towels. These reviews are highlighted in the magazine and online. When products are evaluated for the Good Housekeeping Seal and the Green Good Housekeeping Seal, which both represent Good Housekeeping's two-year limited warranty, promising a replacement or a refund up to $2,000 if a seal product becomes defective within two years of purchase. Certain exclusions apply. Promotional materials for the product are also reviewed. So, Mm. very consumer-like. I like it. I don't like it. Actually, I just need to go back and look and see if I've bought any of those things, even Mm. though it wasn't based on there. Well, I I can't say that out loud, can I? Then I won't get a refund. <laughs> oh, no. Well, we can't have that. Um, and unsurprisingly, it took a while for the magazine industry to change its trajectory, and it didn't have any women editors until 1994. The first six editors out of nine were all men. Um, though since the first in 1994, the rest of the editors have been women. So before we move on to localized magazines, we did want to note some of the past advice from this magazine uh, and giving credit where credit is due. The magazine recognized their own icks and published an article titled The Good Wife's Guide to Helping Her Husband Succeed at Work. The article begins with a disclaimer saying, in our 130 years of publishing, we featured all kinds of tips, recipes, and personal stories. Some smart advice still stands the test of time. Others, well, not so much. Presented here with no further comment is a feature from the January 1956 issue of Good Housekeeping. The basic premise, a hiring manager offers his tips to a wife for helping her husband succeed at work. Enjoy. Okay, this is also where we'll be like, yeah, this is going to make you a little angry, but also (laughs) maybe make you laugh because you're like, what the hell? So um, here's some excerpts from that article. We employers realize how often the wrong wife can break the right man. This doesn't mean that the wife is necessarily wrong for that man, but that she is wrong for the job. On the other hand, more often than is realized, the wife is the chief factor in the husband's success in his career. In the first place, she has a very definite effect on a man's spirit. And then the article continues, If a man has a peevish, nagging wife, if she is jealous and possessive, if she is lazy or overambitious or extravagant, that man is going to be unhappy, and his unhappiness will interfere with his concentration on his job. 
In the case of an important executive, this lack of concentration can affect the outcome of a business conference. It may even kill a profitable deal. Oh, dear. Well, <laughs> um, so here is some advice that they listed off. A good wife is friendly. A good wife's primary interest is her husband, her home, and her children. And here are some specifics to that. A good wife is there when her husband needs her. She must be his sounding board. She must be able to listen patiently without giving advice. She must have the knack of commenting without interfering. Sometimes it may be necessary for her to make sacrifices for the sake of her husband and his business career. She cannot be free to do this if she is dedicated to a career of her own. Ew, Annie. Mm. Yeah, don't have a career oh. of your own. How oh. dare you? This is why you're single. I'm just <laughs> oh, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and then they go on and, and, and add the bad wife things. Um, and so here it, it includes being a complaining woman, a dominating woman, and the wife in a rut. And y'all, <laughs> we have to talk about this wife in, in a rut. And you might be like, well, well, what is that? Well, they are, quote, pathetic little creatures is just out of her element. She is self-conscious, nervous, and awkward. Her taste in clothes is usually pretty bad. Her conversation centers on babies and how to wash the kitchen floor. Ten or 15 years ago, she may have been the pretty little pretty little girl on Maple Street. Her husband has become a man of the world, but she is still on Maple Street. Oh, no. <laughs> At least it's not Elm Street, eh? <laughs> Y'all, I, I mean, again, kudos to Good Housekeeping for understanding how bad this was and also being able to call themselves out on it. So, mm-hmm. pass off to them, but damn. <laughs> I feel like I connect with this wife in a rut. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, wait, if all of her life she's supposed to be at being the perfect mom, what else is she going to talk about but the child and how to clean the floors? Right. Like, I am not necessarily a wife of anything, but I sometimes talk about how to clean the floors. (laughs) Not the child part. My clothes are bad. It's cold. I don't care. (laughs) <laughs> I am definitely awkward, so how dare you, sir? <laughs> exactly. Jeez Louise. <laughs> yes. Uh, it's such solid advice from the 1950s. Uh, <laughs> Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast, I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. 
all these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. But you know, we don't know this. Good Housekeeping wasn't the only ones perpetuating this type of idea. Um, and even more so, there are magazines that were published more locally, uh, like the one that we were talking about earlier, Southern Living. Um, and we did want to kind of talk about what they have done, what they represent a little bit of, uh, the good and the bad, I think, in it. Eventually, I think we want to talk about the recipes from this, but we'll come back to that. If you've ever, again, as we told you all earlier, if you travel through the South, and I'm not talking about uh I'm not talking about Florida, probably Florida, but more Georgia, uh, Alabama, Mississippi, South Carolina, Tennessee, and those areas and and, and beyond, Southeast area, uh, you have seen this magazine, um, the glossy picture of an idealistic, uh, decorated to the T home. It's like Martha Stewart is the designer of this place. uh, And it's all over the covers, just crisp and clean. And inside are articles on how-tos and the best recipes. and they even had floor plans. Like, they had some amazing floor plans to the point that it kind of uh, started trends all over the South on how, what kind of homes were being built. And when it comes to the holidays, unmatched, y'all. I, like, I can think of, what, like, one magazine with this tree that had a very, like, Southern feel. Like, I think it says Country Christmas is what it was called. Mm. Um, of course, there's also a Country Living now that I think about it, magazine, yeah. <laughs> I forgot about that one until just now. And then, like, yeah, not a mini series, you say? <laughs> I'm not going to talk about it. Um, but it's quite interesting. These magazines, and they're very well printed and very pretty, prettily put together. And again, I believe many of the older boomer generations of women were haunted by the need to follow suit of these uh, perfectly decorated trees and such. Again, my mom had full-on themed. Christmas trees. I think one was like French country. One was like uh, 
an old traditional, as what she would call it, because so we would have our our old school children's ornaments that we loved on in one tree. So it's like she had to distinguish the two, and they w- were trying to be the ultimate decorators of their pristine, very pretty southern homes. Um, and again, we've talked about how our mothers will go all out for every season of the year to decorate. Again, my mom has like apple-themed wreaths that go for the fall, Easter-themed wreaths that go for spring. Like, it's a thing. Um, And it goes from the front of the house. I mean, from the minute you walk up to the porch, again, the wreaths, to the guest rooms, to the living rooms, to the bathrooms, it's all there. And it's in in part to these magazines. Right. Well, um, this publication originally came out in 1966. it was published by the Progressive Farmer Company, which was the publisher of the Progressive Farmer magazine. And this lifestyle magazine is still one of the most subscribed to magazines. Here's a bit about them from their own site. It was from it was for an article celebrating their 50th anniversary in 2016. Southern Living is descended from the Progressive Farmer magazine, which has roots in Raleigh and dates back to 1886. Southern Living was spun out of that magazine's lifestyle and home life section, which was popular among suburban housewives. The magazine has 2.8 million subscribers, with about 14,000 who have been subscribers for five decades. Wow. A large proponent of the magazine was the many different recipes featured in the magazine. Um, In fact, they started an annual recipe book in 1979 and have been publishing them ever since. Here's what they say on their website. The 1979 edition of Southern Living Annual Recipes, which has sold well over 21 million copies since its first printing, was just the beginning. The popularity and reliability of Southern Living recipes, coupled with the steady flow of comments, questions, and suggestions from readers, led to a highly successful extension for the brand. This annual cookbook has been published every year since. I want to say my mother would cut out these recipes. Yeah. And I think I have what I call, like, the uh, hillbilly... taco salad which you've had before yeah it's good like it's very odd that i think she got from there and i think it was in sponsorship with rice aroni which is what i use in this y'all yes so many recipes were like companies being like here's how you can eat bananas and it's a whole book of banana recipes but my mom has that too she has a recipe box and just has like these cutouts that Mm -hmm. are like all folded you can't read all of it (laughs) she got from magazines I think I tried to do a homemade cake with fudge icing for my mother for that the Mm -hmm. cake did not turn out so well the icing was delicious though well there you go (laughs) (laughs) but you know with the things that were happening and this is what the appeal is and many of the women have followed suit and still again still subscribe man five decades worth for thousands of people for this magazine and I guarantee my mom has been probably a part of that because, like I said, I had it as a child and I'm around, you know, 40 now, 40s, in my 40s now. So knowing that she's had it for that long. Uh, But the book has a lot of criticism as well, including the glaring fact that the magazine was based out of the South and, and at the time ignored the racism and racial violence that was happening in that time period and in that area. Um, Some of the articles point out the fact that this magazine existed during one of the most heated times of the civil rights movement and ignored the issues around them, and that it was proof enough that this magazine and a lot of magazines like it whitewashed and overall completely refused to acknowledge the issues that were happening. 
A specific researcher, uh, and I believe she was a student at the time, Summer Hill Vinson, wrote about this for her dissertation titled Whitewashing Southern Living, the Sociocultural Significance of the 1966 Magazine Launch in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, And in her paper, she writes about the issues of how a still popular magazine hasn't really been studied when it comes to their place in history during the civil rights movement. Uh, Here's a quote from that. Historian James Cobb explained that the whitewashing of history in Southern living occurred in the aftermath of the civil rights movement when white Southerners scrambled to find an identity that was unique but unrelated to racism. Quote, for many of them, that search seemed to begin at the very end of the civil rights era with the cleverly pleasing pages of Southern Living magazine. He argued that it was no accident that a magazine for white Southerners launched in the later years of the civil rights movement. And it goes on, that mirage hid so much pain, as American Studies professor Alan Tulos explained in the 1979 article, Azalea Death Trip. Not only are the historical rich folkways given an eye-catching or sentimental treatment, which ultimately trivializes them, but sanction is given to a way of looking at life, which eliminates its unpleasant, tragic realities, its historical burdens, and its future obligations. By looking the other way, the magazine endorsed a lifestyle that romanticized reality and lets white Southerners off the hook for their role in the events taking place around them. Um, Of course, this is just a small snippet from that article uh, from that dissertation. And I think it's a lot in conversation because there's also a lot of identity put into magazines like this and why mediums like this was so important. And then when, when we come back and talk about magazines effects today, we will talk about the fashion industry and uh, even the political uh, ideas behind it. But things like this have a huge cultural impact. And again, as Annie was saying previously, this was before the internet. This is how news traveled and or what you thought other people were doing as well. They might not be you, but they're out there because you see this in this glossy, beautiful magazine saying that you should be making these recipes and ignoring everything else. It, there's even articles talking about how they ignored and didn't have many uh Black community members as featured in any of the articles, featured in any of uh, the celebrations or any of the conversations in this uh, magazine, which was supposed to celebrate all of the South um, Mm -hmm. at that time. There was a recent article about how there needs to be a reckoning for Southern living. And I say recent, I mean the last 10 years, because they were still featuring things like plantations and showing Mm -hmm. tours about plantations and how they ignored the history behind it just to show pretty pictures uh, of that property and making money off of Mm -hmm. that property. And again, not acknowledging what had happened there, what was going on there. Um, I think at one point in the article that they did talk about the fact that one of the editors were like, no, 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 we, we, we featured black people. Look. And it was like a handful, possibly a few times. Um, And there's a lot to say in that conversation. There was also an article, which Annie, I told you about previously, and I cannot not share. Uh, I'm not going to read it, read it necessarily, but I found it really, really funny because there's a man complaining about how Southern Living has lost its way. And I was like, wait, what's happening? Um, and his complaint was the fact that it's no longer featured recipes. It no longer featured like help, helpful guides or how to's. Instead, it was now trying to sell you things or it was trying to uh, tell you how to be a better woman this way, like sex life, how to have a better sex life and all these things. Mm. And though he had a point... <laughs> I still yeah. was like, I don't know if I want to take this from a 60-year-old white man, balding white man. Like, not, I'm just saying, like, he's not wrong. Yeah. 
But I don't feel like this is his place to say. I get. I mean, anyone can enjoy any of those things. Mm-hmm. But it's odd to be like, you are teaching women better things. Go back to that. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is strange. And I think one of the things um, when we come back, whenever that will be, probably February, uh, with the next part, We've talked about before on this show, I think past host Kristen Caroline definitely talked about it, but you know, that with the internet, the magazine industry has been in flux. There has been a lot of like pressure of how, how they're going to survive. I personally feel like magazines are such a luxury. Like I usually only get them if there's like Star Wars on the cover or I don't do this, but my friends, when we go to like the beach or something, we'll get magazines. But otherwise, so it's sort of an interesting space they're in but there are we also you should go listen um to our old fanzine episode Mm -hmm. because there are places where it's like really niche and it's growing so it's not that it's gone away it's definitely a huge place for advertising i will say (laughs) right um but it's a lot of these big magazines that have been around for so long are kind of questioning like well what are we now? How do we keep going? What is right. this? <laughs> well, we had like, there's, and, and we're going to talk about this for sure when we come for an, it's not part two. I'm not, I'm refusing to call it a part two uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> for the other episode that we were going to do that's somewhat related to this um, about the whole virtual uh, magazines uh, or mm-hmm. how it is no longer in press necessarily and is now all online and what does that yeah. look like? And then also talking about um, paywalls and is that a good thing? Yeah. But how, do, you know, how else do they make money? advertising right. I know but this is back and forth and why do I find it irritating to pay for a subscription when I would have been will- willing to buy a magazine like, <laughs> that's my own right. thing here but again who who is who is affected uh, who isn't affected by this who is being targeted who is being marketed to and but also how is it still making changes in society because again a local regional magazine that like Southern Living has impacted society pretty deeply. Mm-hmm. And the same thing with all the other magazines we talked about, like as as they have, thank God, transformed or hopefully are transforming into being better messages for women mm-hmm. uh, and more inclusive, I would hope, um, and less heteronormative. But, you know, like what kind of impact they had on so many young women, older women, uh, so many of the things, that, the expectations that it held. And yeah, and yeah. what we bought because of it. Like, at one point in time, TikTok did not exist, and I was not influenced by TikTok. I was influenced by magazines telling me I needed to go get this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a lot of those recipes would be like, hey, you want to make this aspect? Guess what? You're going to need this gelatin mold. Right. <laughs> here's where you can get it. Here's what, Here's this. Let me show you. <laughs> Yes, you could send in your little mail-in coupon thing and they will send it to you. I also clip coupons out of magazines. Wow. Yeah. Memories. What a world. Memories. Memories. (laughs) Um, Well, do watch out for our next follow-up. I'll we'll do a, fo- there you go, follow-up. A, a Valentine's follow-up. Day follow-up. That's what I feel like it's going to be. A related follow-up. And I will open the box on my Ryan Gosling shine. And it's gonna, so you're going to laugh. It's very embarrassing. I'm so excited. But in the meantime, listeners, if you have any thoughts about any of this, if you still have any magazines or memories about magazines, fanzines, you can let us know. You can email us at stephanieandmomstuff at iheartmedia.com. You can find us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast or on Instagram and TikTok at Stuff I've Never Told You. We have a tea public store and we have a book. 
that you can get wherever you get your books. Thanks as always to our super producer, Christina, our executive producer, Maya, and our contributor, Joey. Thank you. And thanks to you for listening. Stuff on Never Told You's production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, you can check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by Pedigree. If you've been looking for love at first sight, it is closer than you think. It can be found at your local shelter. So this June 7th to 9th, join the Pedigree Adoption Drive and the Pedigree brand will reimburse your dog adoption fees nationwide. Pedigree knows that bringing a dog into your home not only opens their heart, it can open yours too. Visit pedigree.com slash adoption dash drive to learn more about the adoption drive and to see full terms and conditions. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., And I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.